Welcome. Dave and Steve here. Welcome to today's podcast. We are delighted to have you as always and honoured. And today we've got a tintillating episode for you. It, it's it's going to help make you more potent. Uh, and work on your becoming more like a potent citadel. So this was our third conversation we got to have in person. It's with someone that we admired hugely, have felt like this is someone that's going to be a really good friend and someone that really lives up to their name. And this man is called Moncom, which is a, 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 might sound like a strange name to many people, but the, the that's an Irish word. The English meaning of it means little monk. And he, he is quite a spiritual, quite a connected, the conversation, human. The conversation went into spirituality. Moncon is a journalist that's written numbers of books. He's done travel TV shows all across the world and is deeply rooted in the Irish language. He comes from a family with deep roots into the Irish culture and history and, and, and the a past. sense of Irish being a symbol of rebellion. Uh, but for anyone who isn't obviously from Ireland and use the Irish language, it's a native language similar to Sanskrit and Arabic. And there's many strong links between Sanskrit, Arabic and Irish. And these native cultures often have a huge amount of symbolism that's very similar, similar and kind of reminds us that although these languages and tribes were once separate, they're, we're all one. We're all quite similar and quite connected. And the conversation was beautiful. It went, we went back to the root of it all that really ultimately now in society where we need is more connection. And we discussed about the connection to the land and how language can be this key to connecting us to a more simpler way of life. We talked about the, the climate and the environment. It was a super inspiring conversation. You're going to love it. We enjoyed it immensely. It was a great laugh. And it was really like boiled down to practical, simple things. It also offered me a bit of a paradigm shift, that sense of connection to when I was like 24, 23, 24, traveling around the world, a total idealist and dreamer about what is utopia and what is the most utopian way to live. And it kind of gave little splinters into that direction. Again. I think it freed up some of the cynicism that I've got in recent times with, oh, geez, boo, the world is tough and hard and give you hard edges. But it definitely helped, uh, Moncon helped create a vision of where things could potentially move towards and why it would be very beneficial. What a champion, what a hero. Please, this is a wonderful conversation. And one thing which was wonderful about this conversation was that it was in person, so it was was, it was genuinely a good laugh. So I hope you really do enjoy this. Once again, thanks for your attention. Thanks for being part of this podcast. If our last series was all on community, which was wonderful. We hope you really enjoyed it. If you haven't checked out these episodes, please do. And as we always say, if you do, what, what really helps us is if you do like an episode, share it with friends, recommend it on social media. If you can, we'll always repost it because it's something that is so dear to our heart and that we love. Or subscribe. I think that's meant to be really good oh, for yeah, it yeah. to like it or subscribe it on on the platforms that you listen but to. But anyway, brace yourself for a wonderful conversation and welcome the wonderful Monko McGann. Well, welcome Monko. It's an absolute honour to have you and it's startling to have someone in the same room as us other than looking at a screen. Yeah, thank you so much. For me, it is an honour, as you said, to be in the same space, breathing the same air, the same infected air. Whoa! <laughs> this is so dangerous and so exciting at the same time. I feel like I'm living on the edge. Yeah, 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 genuinely. So, yeah, delighted. I guess, the, what it like, over the last number of months, we've got proper into learning Irish. And we meet Brendan once a week and I'm using my daughter's 10-year-old books and I'm going through them on a weekly basis. I couldn't say on a nightly basis. But uh, I've come across you so many times after the la last month. And obviously we've known you for years, but haven't really got to spend that much time. And you're just such a symbol of Irish history and roots and culture and ancestry. And you inspire me. Hmm. And, and, and I think you represent, like, to me, say, Irish, grown up in Ireland and Irish being 
a language that was kind of forced down our throat and it was never sold to us from this inspiration. This is a language of beauty or as I think you said once that it's like the key to, un- are you not- Yeah, you said it was a quote, which I said, it's, it's a key to unlocking who we are. Yeah. Which yeah. I thought was a really beautiful thing because so many of us are wandering around looking for understanding more about ourselves and where we fit in this world in a greater landscape of busy modern life. And you, you've, you've got such an interesting, colorful story in so many ways as I learn more um, from your house. Let's get into it anyway. But thank you for the inspiration. And, thank you. Uh, I yeah. think you represent a new, new dawn of Irishness for me. Ha. I mean, it's the same with me. Like I, I had stopped speaking Irish for a long time because it was associated with all things in my family, my background, with this Republican, violent, revolutionary past. So I was taught of Irish as a weapon of war against the English. So, you know, people say, oh, it was taught badly to me in school. But for me, every word that my granny taught me was, I mean, she had a deep, deep, profound love of Irish, but she also wanted it as a bullet aimed at the British Empire, the British system. Wow. So I, at some point, you know, started traveling the world and thought, I don't want to be using a weapon of war. And I stopped it. And it's only now, as all of us are connecting with the land, and connect, well, so many of us are connecting with landscape and wanting heritage, that I'm thinking, my God, this Irish that's inside me is really valuable and is something that we can use, as you say, as a key to other things. And, yeah. and when, when did you, like, because obviously, you know, you went through school and you did all that kind of stuff. When did you kind of come back into Irish? Or when did you, when did you kind of, when, what sparked this, Mm-hmm. this interest back into this language. So if like maybe for about eight years, I spend my time just lost in the wilderness, you know, going places and trying to find meaning. And eventually... This, I, this, this is after school. Exactly, yeah. after school, right after school. I did one year in UCD and then just ran. And I ended up in, in, a, in a cave, in a cow shed in the Himalayas, looking for mine, looking for wisdom, yeah. And, Good um, place to look for wisdom. Amazing place. Like the Himalayas does have something potent, but I didn't find wisdom immediately. I mean, I looked for a cave, couldn't find a cave, found a, a farmer called Kim Singh who just shoveled out the manure from his cow shed and put me in there and over time I began to just get into my body and get into the earth and feel this connection that you could go deep places in your mind Um, and then I thought I mean I went too far in my mind and my brother came out it was 1996 he came out with the idea of making a television series for a television channel news channel called TG Carr that was going to be set up and so he and I made a, a TV series and I had got big into Ayurvedic medicine. So I was doing all sorts of weird practices at the time. But um, he and I decided to make a TV series. So the second day, Telefish Nguelga, TG Car was ever on air, I had a program of me roaming uh, India. And then my brother and I for the next te- decade... In Irish, all yeah. in Irish. First ever travel series ever made in Irish. And wow. for the next, the next decade, Ruan and I, my brother and I did that. We made programs in so the ten, Middle East. You got 10 years out of traveling, ten, talking Irish, showing the world through the lens of the yeah. Irish language. I mean, who would have thought that my granny, when she was trying to instill these words and paying me bribes for every shanuckle and word and making me meet up with all the ex- old Blasket Islanders, that then I would go, as you say, to China, to South America, to Greenland, to right Africa, all making programs, but all looking for Unsulela. Remember, T.G. Carr's name was Unsulela, the other eye, the uh, looking at things from a different glance. So I would just go to meet and stay with other minority tribes, whether the Yami people in Lanyu Island or the Tarahumara um, um, mountain oh, runners, the runners in Sierra wow. Madre. Did you go yeah. live with them? Yeah, the twat. I mean, not for not live is wrong to say. Spending even, a few days, yeah. You, uh, and now, without taking a sidetrack here, could you tell us about that? Because that book, I read that book, Born to Run, about yeah. the Tarahumara uh-huh. sure, uh, running it runners, such a yeah, yeah. and it was so inspiring with their flat, ru- flat-soled sandals. Mm-hmm. 
and they'd run hundreds of miles. Exactly. Yeah. So the and, Tarahumara live on the bottom, on the valley bottoms in Sierra Madre Mountains in in Spain, and you know where most tribes will either is it have Spain or Mexico. Sorry, Mexico. Mexico. Will either most tribes will either have spears or bows and arrows or something. They don't. They just run down their prey. They exhaust their prey. Now, when I went to see them, um, I was on the Barranco del Cobro, the, the the canyon on top of the mountain, and I was meeting with the with the the Tarahumara who are decided to come out of the valley bottoms and live on the side of the further up between the modern town, the modern Pueblo and then the valley bottom. So these were people who were already wearing Western clothes and uh, clothes and they weren't as good at running as their true cousins who were still at the bottom of the, of the, of the mountains. But they just, they, I mean, because what happened was like 400 years ago, the Jesuits came out, tried to convert them. And these, the ones I was talking to were the ones who had partially been converted, but still kept their belief alive. Um, and so they were, they were, you know, in between the two, but they were like incredibly healthy people still living in caves in, uh, in this area, the caves still naturally occur in this soft stone. And I just thought these people in one way have nothing and yet they have everything. So all of the people I met with the Bedouins, the, um, the Berbers all had this happiness with simple, with very little. And so that made me finally come home and think, okay, so I've been seeing minority cultures all over the world who have incredible gifts and insights. And I wonder, is there anything back here in Ireland that I have forgotten, that I have ignored? And that started me then exploring, going under the, the surface. Irish language, that's their and our culture. The tool, Ella. But it also, mm-hmm. but it also now you're sparking something else, which I know is part of your story, is that, and you touched on it there, these people that had very little and they had a deep sense of happiness and a deep sense of place. And I know... It brings me back to you kind of saying your story of your own house and how that, because I think that's such an interest. And, and even it reminds me of a shanfuckle. Um, I, I can't, a shanfuckle is a, it's like an old Irish, it means old word, but it's, it kind of references kind of almost that sense of folklore, that sense of, what's the word? The Aesop's fable, a sense of a fable. And um, it was Jason that said it. I can't say it in Irish. I know what it means in English, but it meant um, enough is a feast. Mm. And I think it's a wonderful sense of that, like it, it, we've become quite a greedy society that we don't know when is enough. And if you look at our economies, they're all built on exponential growth or just continuous growth. Whereas the concept that enough is perfect. And if you go to any of these Michelin star restaurants, they don't want to f- overfeed you. It's always to leave you wanting more. Yeah. So then you're left going, wow. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's the point of maximum satisfaction. Yeah. So what was the surname of the man, Richard, who you had on recently? Richard Heinberg. Richard Heinberg. So, you know, he gave an incredibly potent talk to you guys saying things are in a dire situation. And that was even in the last, you know, few weeks, we've been hearing all these UN reports about how we are eating through resources so quickly. And that could lead to despair. But yet for me, I go back to things I know. I go back to one of the central areas for me in Ireland is the National Museum of Country Life outside Castle Bar. So Ireland has, uh, you know, the three national museums. So what's it called? The National Museum, museum of, of Country Life outside Castle, Castle Bar. Bar. So Never heard of it. No. So there's three, Castle Bar's Galway. Yeah. The so National West Mu- Ireland. Exactly. The National Museum is Ireland. split. The Nationalist Museum is split into three divisions. There's the one with all the gold and the bog bodies on it on uh, Kildare Street, you know, beside the Dáil. There's Collins Barracks, which has everything from Eileen Gray design to, to all sorts of stuff. And then in Mayo, and the National Museum seemed to give no love to this, to this museum. They never really promoted it or anything, but it blows my, my mind. It is basically a museum of everything we 
made and used for our worlds from about 1870 until 1940s or 50s. Well, actually, from really the Bronze Age to the 1950s, because nothing changed. So you go in and there's layer after layer, floor after floor, and particularly down the archives, every single thing that we used in our world made out either of straw or wood or fibres or rope or grass or cloth or skin or leather all natural substances right up until the 40s sometimes up until the 60s everything we had was from natural fibres and these worlds as we know from our folklore were incredibly rich there was divilment there was fun there was mad music sessions mad bacchanalia like just games and play these were happy times there was also of course poverty because we didn't have the medical insights and we didn't have some of the levels of security we have now but I know our people from for three and a half, four thousand years since the Bronze Age, the very same people, us, our ancestors, lived on this island, made everything we needed for our survival out of the materials that were around us, and spoke this language, the language that rooted us to the landscape. These ma- these wooden bowls and leather things, and all the different ropes that were used for getting seagulls' eggs from a cliff. You know, ropes made of uh, horsehair, ropes with seaweed in them, ropes with different types of grasses. We still know how to make all these things. So if we can find a way of being happy with ourselves, of connecting with ourselves, we have all the resources around us to live really comfortably. And so that's what makes me hopeful. And particularly, as you said, you mentioned my straw bale house. So after spending 10 years like living, well, you know, I spent a year, two years in, living in South America. Then I spent eight months in India. Then I spent eight months in, in Africa. And then Ruan and I, my brother and I, went to, back to all these places to make documentaries. And everywhere I was seeing, nobody had a mortgage. They built houses about what, out of what was around them. So in Nepal, it might have been out of big stones. In Bolivia, it was mud. In Africa, it was reeds. In, in Africa, it was mud and straw. So I came back to Ireland. I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to get a mortgage. Now, if you'd met me, you would have seen I said I was a deluded like hippie at the time big glazing blind eyes massive hair because you're so different now <laughs> <laughs> I am now pragmatic and a schemer like yeah now I'm a hypocrite and a, um, but um, yeah so I decided I was going to do the same and I had 10 grand my granny the Republican revolutionary who taught me Irish had died and left me 10 grand so wow. I, I looked all over Ireland for land I wanted 10 acres this was my idea in 1997 what was, was there any theory behind the 10 acres no I just said I have 10 grand I want 10 acres no (laughs) yeah maybe in one of the John Seymour self-sufficiency books I mean he was always talking about one acre was all you needed but for some reason maybe I wanted neighbours I wanted a little commune that I could be the head of a cult maybe Um, (laughs) and so I I, you know I looked down Waterford and Wexford because I thought where is the warmest part of Ireland that's where I'll grow my things and they laughed me out of it when I said I had 10 grand and then I went to the Midlands oh then I tried West Cork where all the hippies were and East Clare where there were more hippies too expensive no just too much of a head wreck head wreck like they were the people you mentioned when you were talking to Richard they're always sensitive people who are ahead of their time who can see those people in West Cork the New Agers and the the Crusties and the anti-road brigade there in East Clare they could see what was coming the dire thing and they were just so negative and so much infighting that I thought I don't want to be around them mm. so eventually I went and moved to the Midlands and I rang a man I tried the Midlands I rang a man in Castle Pollard Paddy Murphy an auctioneer I said I have 10 grand I need 10 acres and he said look no further he said I'm taking that 10 grand from you you're never leaving this county and, and he, found, that. Yeah, he found me a beautiful place yeah. and that's in County Mead County Westmead County Westmead yeah. yeah and then I planted whatever 12,000 trees on six of the acres which now you know warms me in winter and then I looked around and it was bales of straw people were growing oaten and barley straw so I just bought 200 bales of straw and built my house out of that 
And that building out of what was around me, using warmth, using the trees that I was growing myself to warm me. And that has meant that I haven't had a mortgage. That has meant that I haven't had a real job. still standing and still... No. <laughs> I'm a shite builder. I'm a terrible builder. I mean, the bales were perfect, but I didn't understand the concept of foundations. <laughs> yeah, 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 so I just put in a four inch little bench slab and that cracked in the subsidence. So after six years, I built a slightly bigger house, which Mark had, two exactly with, with grass on the roof and with proper foundations with proper for big slab of a foundation, heavy wow. concrete foundation, which I probably didn't need. I went over too over the top with the foundation next time, and then I planning mission Westmead and their wisdom had given me the first planning mission for a straw bale house at the time. In, wow. This was two thousand and two, but I chickened out last minute and I put block and mud and straw on the walls, so it's sort of a, a, a schizophrenic house. <laughs> but but that, that house cost me the first house cost me five grand, the second house cost me twenty. 26 grand and I'm living there ever since jeez no mortgage that's the dream that a lot of people are looking for but a lot of people are busy working like you know society tells us this underlying story that if you work really 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 hard and you get all the breaks you'll be able to live mortgage free and a lot of us are chasing that dream yeah yeah yeah. what's it like (laughs) what's the reality um yeah I mean it, for me, I just couldn't have done the other. I was one of these sensitive kids, you know, probably like those sort of new ages and crusties. I couldn't have been, get into, got into the real world. You know, I would have just been lost. I would have ended up so in some sort of institution. I just needed to find something where I was on my own terms, where I could do what I wanted and wander the hills if I wanted to for and a day. And gave you that sense of freedom. And But that sort of thing was always so weirdo and marginal and isolated. And now finally my source is saying, wait there, come in from the, the wild of the margins maybe we might need to go a bit those ways um, but it does make me think as everything as you continue as podcasting whether you're listening to Zach Bush or Russell Grant Russell Grant no Russell, Russell Brand Russell Brand um, you know and we're all saying we're in a time of urgency but there are answers I'm thinking the answers are kind of simple the answers have always been on this island it's the way we've lived on this island for thousands of years we've had of course a bit we've had poverty and hardship but we don't need to do that that's just because we were colonized because all of our knowledge all of our energy all of our essence all of our language was crushed from us but now we don't have that now we are masters of our own dominion we can do what we want it's just up to us to make that choice wow I love that mm. can I can I you can I go? I should go ahead. Okay, great. I, like I really want to just talk about the the topic of language because it's something that like growing before, up. Before we go there, can we go into one more thing while we're on the topic of buildings? And whatever? Certainly, Dave. And then then we can get into the language thing. I just wanted to ask on that topic of like because you've been living it since two thousand and two. You've been trying to pioneer what the world needs to move towards in a sense, like because in a sense where as you said we're in this time of urgency, climate's changing massively. You know, there's a lot of political unrest, climate unrest. It seems like the cracks are starting to appear and people are going, oh, maybe this kind of climate thing, climate change thing, maybe it is real. And you've been kind of living this sustainable lifestyle, like very sustainable in a sense of being non-consumerist, like no mortgage, living simply. And you've been living this for, for the guts of 20 years. So what does it look like? What tools do we need? How the hell do we all transition to this? Because most of us are, you know, are busy chasing the other route of I'm going to earn my way out of no mortgage and it's kind of tough but the reality unfortunately is even if you have an extremely high paying job you're going to end up purchasing a house that's going to you know Mm -hmm. give yourself 25 years to pay it off or 30 years and it's you know and I'm not saying that that's wrong I'm just saying that by itself creates a different responsibility Mm -hmm. in a certain lifestyle yeah 
So, you know, in Wales now, they have a programme that you can go out tomorrow and build an ecological house. And as long as it is practically zero carbon, you don't need to apply for planning permission for it. You can put it up there. And then after five, ten years, five years, I think, the government, the Welsh government will come out and see. And if it's zero carbon, you're automatically given planning. And it does not cost much to build a zero carbon house, you know, either an earth chip like Mike Reynolds did with the tyres in in, um, Arizona. Um, are um, in Taos, New Mexico. Sorry, Taos, New Mexico. Yeah, I was there. I spent yeah, a good yeah. bit of time yeah. there playing in those, those yeah. chips. Yeah, um, are like either you know are just a, a timber. There's many ways of building simple houses. The way I did it, building on my own for one person, is definitely not the most sustainable way. We know that communities, and again, Richard was talking about intentional communities. If you can get people to gather together, and there are so many people looking for alternatives, land is still ridiculously cheap in Ireland compared to other countries. Building in, in land, certain parts, typically exactly. in certain parts. Exactly, yeah, yeah. The whole Donegal, Leitrim, Roscommon. Um, the middle. But even even Wicklow, like planning mission is very hard in Wicklow. But if 10 people get together, a site is really, is it like 40 grand? Maybe a maximum, the key site might be 80 grand. If you get enough people, a site can build, a lot, a lot of people can build on a site, can live on a site. So if we were living on these sites, which had where we were growing some food, either, you know, you go to Cuba and you see all of that food grown in the cities um, because of, you know, having realized blockade, having re- re- experienced famine in the 80s and 90s from blockades American blockades, they're growing their foods in their own local area. So we know the fecundity, the amazing amount nice of food that word, can come out of fecundity. a, a polytunnel, cool just the flourishingness. Like Ireland has this perfect climate to grow food, at least for most of the winter. And you boys and your brother, Darren, Darren are doing so much work about finding these things, realising how much we can grow in raised beds in and grow your own. There's so many people focused on this now. So once we know that we can build shelter simply together, there's a great man, Harrison Gardner in Clare, who, who has a course called how to oh, build yeah. everything out of anything or something like that. Oh, Handsome Harry. Exactly. The Walt Disney Prince. <laughs> That's what we yeah. used to call him because he's so but he's got, he's he In January or February, he's got a new TV, RT TV series coming out. He's got a new book coming out. Basically telling people... Harry's build, gone. Good yeah. on. Ha- so <laughs> if anyone doesn't know Harry, Harry we met through a friend, Luca D'Alfonso and Ash, mm-hmm. Ashling Rogerson. Um, they have a wonderful restaurant called The Fumbly and Handsome Harry worked there as he recently became, uh, as he became coined because he looked like a Walt Disney <laughs> prince. And when you met him, even if you knew you were expecting to meet this Walt Disney prince, you meet him and go... Well, you're gorgeous. And, and you're really lovely to talk to. <laughs> and he's a wonderful builder. Yeah, yeah. So that's my little intro to yeah. Harrison. So what excites me so much, the answers are all coming together now. People are, you know, clearly as, I mean, there's such, a, there's such an oppressive regime trying to stop us, build our, own, um, build our own homes, grow our own food, come together in communities beyond the norm. And yet, despite the forces of consumerism and capitalism to say, stay isolated, just consume through Amazon, all of these are happening under the surface. You, before we start talking, you really wisely pointed out it's happening for us. We know, we must always be aware. I must always be aware. I am in a little bubble. I am in a cosmos. There's very many people who are not tied into these alternative stuff. But it seems to be growing the whole time with these podcasts just just exploding. So the answers are now there. Where when I started looking twenty years ago, they were not. There was no internet when I wanted to build a straw bale house. You know, there was a rudimentary sort of what do they call lists, some mailing lists or something. But the answers are now there, and people. The more we get to a sense of desperation, they're going to want, what do I need? And all you need is shelter and food. And look at what happened during COVID. Look at all of the seed shops in, in Ireland. Brown envelope seeds, seed savers in County Clare. All of them sold out of seeds. And all of them sent us emails saying, for God's sake, we have no seeds left. 
um, save your seed, save, gather seeds now for, and give them, do them for yourself next year. So I used to constantly buy my seeds either from Klaus Lattenberger up in Leitrim or from Seed Savers in Clare or from Brown Envelope in Cork. And they all said to me, save your seeds. So that's what I did. I just allowed a few of the kale and a few of the cabbage and the red cabbage and the cauliflowers to go to, to you know, to go, go to, to seed, seed, to flower for the bees. And then I have my own seed. It's very easy. Like, I am not green-fingered. I don't even put much work into the garden. It's just Ireland. We're living in a country where things grow naturally. So these aren't problems. The problem is we have fear inside of us. That's why we keep with the mortgage. That's why we keep with the job. And again, all of these people who are getting onto the yoga mat or just finding connection with something are just the people... Like, I live by Loch Lane in County Westmeath, a lake since... When humanity came here 10,000 years ago, so they weren't us, you know, the first hunter-gatherers 10,000 years came ago... Came to Ireland, like? Yeah, came to Ireland. And then the people who built Newgrange and all the Neolithic people came, you know, 6,000 years ago. They weren't us, but we were the Bronze Age people. In all that 10,000 years, no one has ever swum in the Midland Lakes in winter. No one is, I mean, they might have gone for a quick wash, you know, Stone Age man. But no one has ever swum until last year, until COVID. <laughs> like I know Greystones and you, you know, is you're coming down with people. The water is like bloody, it's like a salmon fish farm with the name of God. Like, <laughs> but, but in, the Ganges. Pay the Ganges, the Greystones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, doing Darshan with the Happy Pear Boys. But, um, but um, yeah, but Loch Lane has never had people until last year. There's like 40 people every day in the middle of winter. And we were wearing wetsuits because we don't have egos. We we know, and you know, it's, it's two degrees some days. It's minus two. The water, so, the water. Yeah, the water, yeah. Oh, yeah. But we're oh. swimming there. We're connecting. That's that. That's just something I didn't, nobody. And it's that sense of cracking togetherness yeah. and facing a fear together exactly. and just the rejuvenation. Yeah. And nobody sparked that, you know? It just I mean, happened. yeah, that's just a rising up and all these people well, walking. The same with us that didn't, ha- like the us swimming in the sea, it was never something, oh, let's start swimming in the sea and see if other people are joined too. Mm-hmm. It just completely happened of its own. Really? And I thought it was a massive happened. propaganda campaign the Jews were doing, a big uh, proselytizing <laughs> mission. No. <laughs> no, 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 exactly as you're saying. But geez, that's gas. So 40 people now swim most days. Yeah. It, 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 the, the consciousness is rising anyway. Like, you know, and, you know, I had this book out about the Irish language. Had I had that the, book 30 out? 30 words for field. 32 exactly. words, 32 for, words field. for field. That's it, me. yeah, yeah. Um, and had I had, I had that book um, out you know, two years ago, no one would ever have bought it. You know, would have sold, I would have known, I've had books out in the past about the Irish language. I've known everyone who's bought the book. There's 30 <laughs> copies. It's genuinely, I've known them all when I have Irish language books out. This book has sold, whatever, 35,000 copies. It's been Kaboom, still well on the bestseller list. We're now in whenever month. We're now August. And it was published last September. It's still in the bestseller list. That's not because it's a good book. The book was sold out before it was ever available. It's because people want connection to something bigger it's rising up in all of us where it wasn't in the past this is it's a really exciting time very exciting wow. this connection i think the big, the big word that i'm hearing is that sense of connection that sense of us you know greed is something that's in us all and it's something that it's part of the human affliction mm-hmm. and the sense of comparison and the sense of always competition and wanting to be ahead but it's that sense of I think if we do want to find a true wealth, it's to find that sense of enoughness within yeah. ourselves and yeah. that sense of connection can bring that. And do, and do, so, so back to this. So the last two decades, you've been, you've, you've built your own house. Now having sold 35,000 copies, are you planning an upgrade now? <laughs> it's an extension. You put the new skylights. My house is too big. My house is basically the size of your little test kitchen here, your studio. So it's, maybe it's a bit bigger. It's like, 
30, maybe 30 steps in one direction and 12 steps in the other direction. <laughs> like we measured <laughs> steps. Yeah. Not, not feet, not meters, but steps. <laughs> Harrison would be so disappointed with me to hire the builder. But uh, yeah, I never want a house any bigger than that. It's already too big. I like, I must have had incarnations as a monk. Like my name means is Monachon, little monk. And like, I just love simple cells where my head can basically occupy the space. So now I'll, I'll never want a, a bigger place. Um, maybe a little cell in the wilderness or something. But, oh, but when you said, when I was, as you said, if you come into this world, I was born in 1970. If you come in with those sort of ideas in 1970, you feel lost. As a child, you're just idyllic. You can just grow your vegetables. But when you're 19, you suddenly feel that depression. And, and I felt really dark. And I thought, I won't come out of this one way or the other. I won't come out. I, I can only express these ideas in no Depression is in that you couldn't necessarily be what you felt inside. That or, you couldn't or, express that. That, or you, that, that didn't it didn't feel more, it was welcome. Or yeah. that you felt a pressure to be this kind of busy consumerist, getting a career and getting a job and all that, and those pressures, and you felt you didn't fit, you were at a... Exactly, yeah. The same thing that must have sparked used to go travelling when used did. But what saved me was actually someone who you were really connected to, was Marc Michel. So yeah. Marc Michel, a grower in Newtown, Man Kennedy, and Kilpetter, just up the road from here. And I decided, okay, what's going to make sense to me? And I know, I just had this idea. People all on this island for thousands of years have grown leeks, have grown vegetables. Because even the monks, you know, from 1,600 years ago talk about pulling leeks from, like St. Moncon, there's a poem. He was born the 6th century. But he said, all I want is a little cabin by the river with salmon in the river and leeks and wild, um, wild cress and far things growing around me. And then I'll be happy and be. So I thought, I want to create that. And so I knew Mark Michel. I thought he was growing vegetable in Wicklow. If I just do that and dig in the soil. And I, when I learned that, I learned when you dig the soil with your hands or even with a shovel, the amount of serotonin that's released inside your own brain is equivalent to a dose of Prozac. The exact equivalent now to science. Because humans have had to survive by touching the soil, by growing things. So it was natural that dopamine and serotonin would be released by doing that. And it did. It saved me from depression. So I would do that. I'd work with Mark for about four months and then I'd go off travelling somewhere and work, come back. And um, was, this, was this while you were doing the TV shows? No, this was before all that. This is when I was 19, 20, 21. This was like in 88, 89. This was your pros. I'd go up there and dig the fields. Exactly, exactly. Plant the leeks. Yeah. And, and then you started up and you became one of his big customers customers in the early early days yeah exactly it's all connected I love that Jeez, that's really gas. so you got a good grounding in growing veg then from an, so, so when you started your homestead to some mm -hmm. degree as in your your own little idyllic Monconville um, you had you knew how to grow veg so you weren't intimidated by 10 acres really no no oh, I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm killing myself here because if we had an hour I'd tell you before between no, we that have as long as you want we're no, not in any rush no, like, no 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 you know just but briefly in between that time, I found myself up in the in the mountains in Colombia, where you, where you spent time too, I think. But up in the Andes, and I came across the 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 the, the screamers, Atlantis, Ireland's only primal screaming cult from the late seventies and eighties. And uh, this I, is in Colombia. Yeah, is in Colombia, up in the mountains, so south of Bogota. They had two different farms. Um, and uh, they were primal very primal screamers. So like the band Primal Scream. Yeah, they they were following this idea. Was it a Reichian? There was a, f um, a psychologist who believed that we could come, that we all had inner anger and angst, and if we just screamed, we could let that out through us. So they spent a lot of the time. They had a cult on Inishfree, a little island off 
Burton Port in County Donegal. Uh, it was a cult because they were brainwashing people, but they were very, uh, had gorgeous ideas at the same time. And uh, I found them um, when I was, actually I saw it in a, in a guest book in Bogotá and I went up to meet them and I wanted to stay with them. And they were very disillusioned and angry and angst when I was there. But because I knew how to grow a vegetable, they were so disillusioned, they couldn't even grow their vegetables. They were so enervated and exhausted. So because I had the information from the, the organic farm in Wicklow in Newtown, Newtown McKendy, I was able to... Um, stay there and it really showed me another glimpse of a very radical alternative community very high up in the in the cloud forest in the Colombian rainforest between the area where the coca grew for the cocaine growers and then the poppy for the opium growers very dark area where the the fart gorilla were controlling anyway the the fart gorilla yeah the fart gorilla a a Maoist terrorist radical uh, left-wing organization what were the primal screamers like were they Oh, did um, you scream like to, yeah. to help release anger did it work obviously not if they were really angry exactly yeah so I met them I, I first saw them in about 1982 when I was 12 I thought it was the Late Late Show but I think it was the Mike Murphy show and they said we just we live on this island off Donegal and we run around and we, we practice um, sex with everyone comments there was sex with, with, with everybody wow. and screaming and uh, just growing their own vegetables which uh, bit of that attracted you most when I was 12 <laughs> no, not the sex I <laughs> yeah, yeah. it took a long time for me to have any interest in that it was just the freedom and the grown vegetables and just living with nature so I'd forgotten about them from when I was 12 until I came across them when I was 20 you know looking for answers and unfortunately in that time they'd spent so long screaming that they realised if you do scream focus on the negative basically it just brings up more negativity and that's why they were so exhausted they were in such despair having done 15 years maybe of screaming um yeah they did some brilliant things in that time so kevin barry in one of his in his latest book i know his second book to last wrote brilliantly about them sort of a tribe like the screamers meeting up with john lennon on an island when he was searching for an island off mayo in clue bay Anyway, yeah. wow, what? So many oh interesting questions. Jeez, yeah. uh, this is wonderful. Um, what, no, for, I, I want to just take take it to that topic of language, and just to give a little um, prologue, uh, how I came to the Irish language. So we we were, I guess, spoon fed Irish in school, and kind of hated it through school, and even hated other languages. And school saw hated it as backwards. Yeah, and hated, didn't really like, you know, we used to go to France and I remember mom and dad, fortunately, were able to afford to send us to French boarding school for three months when we were 16. And that was a wonderful experience that actually brought this classroom language suddenly to life. It was, wow, I could, I could meet other girls in this if I can speak the language. And it suddenly became a lot more useful. Um, and then uh, left college again, didn't really speak any language. Then subsequently, after finishing college, I've learned to speak lots of different languages and some of them are varying different degrees of proficiency. And it was only in recent years that, um, or it was only last year that we have a podcast club where a group of us each week will pick a podcast and we'll all listen to it and we'll all discuss it. So it's a discussion group. It's like a, a podcast version of a, of a book club. And uh, Linda, <clears throat> who's um, originally from Texas, um, who was a nun and Linda's just turned, has just reached her seventh decade. She picked um, a podcast or one of the, the last interviews with John Donne before he died. John Donahue. John O'Donohue. John O'Donohue, excuse me, uh, before he died. And uh, amazing just interview and such. I've never heard anyone speak so poetic. And he spoke of the Irish language with just this love that was intoxicating. I was just like, it just ignited something. He was like, how embarrassing. I can speak all these other languages and I can't speak Irish. That's just, 
really rude. It's like it's like searching the world and then forgetting to look in your own back garden, which is what I've done lots of times. Uh, so it sparked this love of Irish and through learning Irish, I feel a greater sense of place. And just it's 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 like this little love of this little island has grown even more. And I'm just wonder, I wonder, can we talk about just language and the importance for those even who aren't on Ireland and aren't Irish speakers, the importance of that kind of local language and that sense mm-hmm. of heritage and that sense of place how language and can there be. is there is that expression that a language without or a country without its language is a land without its Changa. so changa gone or tear gone anam yeah exactly and, yeah. and i and yeah i guess i'd love to move the conversation in that direction that's the really yeah nice. so there's a there's a professor of French in Trinity College called Mike Cronin and he wrote something about the Irish language I love and it's the future lies with languages that can maximise diversity okay either human interaction with the non-human after human interaction with the non-human and reveal ways of being that are connected to the specifics of place that are open to the world and Irish is one of those languages so basically we've been on this island as I say for whatever I said, four Ten. and a half, five thousand years. Well, ten thousand years, our ancestors, the people who were before us that we might have wiped out. We don't like to mention that. Um, <laughs> but we've had this language that is on this island for either two and a half, two, two and a half, maybe three thousand years. Okay. That means it is a language that is so rooted in the landscape, in every element, and all old languages are. There's nothing special about Irish than any other ancestral ancient language. But they are languages that are associated with a non hierarchical view of the world with a view where God is in everything in every tree in every raindrop in every cloud and that gives us a different prism through which to understand the world so when you you say hierarchical you mean this sense of everyone's equal that no one's above anyone and that including nature too that everyone everyone is an expression of God and everything is and there's complete yeah. You know, equality. Equality. yeah, they're languages that were before feudal control, before all human subjects were controlled by a central feudal force. Law. Okay, exactly, feudal. Yeah. yeah. So languages where we were all just like simple as peasant farmers. We were all growing on the land and we depended on the land and we depended on the how the sun went around the planet. And so you can even see that in the Irish language. Like if I'm giving directions to someone to say, I'm going southwest to Kerry or the cow is in the field to the east. That person is to the north of me. So when I give a direction in Irish, I have to orientate myself to a burning star in the center of our solar system. Like that is something that most people don't do in the English world. We need to be rooted. And that when that dawned on me, when I was a kid, there was a neighbor, Mike Ida, and um, he saw me trying to open the garage door in West Kerry. And I was trying to open it. I was struggling. I couldn't do it. And so he says, Kasanukkar in Aignigdena. And I said, what? I couldn't understand. And I couldn't understand. And I knew that Irish is an incantational language. So all ancient languages were believed to have force, were, able, were believed to be able to manifest things out of nothing. Okay, so you can look at ancient Sanskrit tales, ancient tales of Estrangela or Sumerian, and they believe they summon things. So the very beginning mythology of Ireland is Amargain, our first druid, our first poet. He said these words that summoned Ireland out of nothingness. Um, these words summoned reality into being. Like in the Bible, you know, first there was a word and then the word was made flesh. So I'm the wind on the sea and suddenly the wind becomes the sea. I'm the strong ocean wave. Like he manufactures these things to the extent that you can find in Irish, like when my granny used to tell me when she was young, 
as a woman who'd go around houses, and if someone had mumps, she'd say, um, Ganamil, Aragamil, Maragamil, Marabsum, Tufat. And she, no one understood what it was. Ganamil, Aragamil, Maragamil. Actually, no, that was something that was found in England. No one understood what it was. We understand, if you listen to it in Irish, Gwyn unveil, Arag unveil, Marag unveil. Gwyn unveil, wound the um, beast or the, the worm. Aragonville pestered the beast. Maragonville killed the beast. So when someone had a worm inside them or worms or a parasite, they'd say these words and the thing would be gone. In the same way, my granny, what my granny heard was a kak a kak kuta letnisha. This woman who had no Irish would say and she would cure people of mumps. She didn't, she didn't speak Irish anymore but she knew the words had power. And again, if we listen to it in Irish, a hark a hark kuta letnisha. Oh hen, oh hen, take on these mumps for yourself. It's the ritual of transference, which all medical, um, no, witch doctors do. They take the badness or the illness and put it into nature, put it into something else. So we can do that. Like when you go to a holistic practitioner, practitioner, that's what they're doing. They're taking the cancer. There's the word, Eilshe is the Irish for cancer, which means cancer, but it also means a particularly devish, devish fairy. It's a dark entity that's got into you. And you can communicate with that Eilshe and get it out of you. So, wow, I love the sense of mystical folklore. I, yeah, yeah. I'm a huge, like, uh, I love the sense of the fairy house, and the, magic. The, the house that I live in, um, we used to call it Fairy Cottage. Oh. And I remember we used to buy little little statues of fairies and we used to believe the fairies lived there. And I love that sense of magical, you mm-hmm. know, belief in the world. We've mm-hmm. become very scientific and very, Just, you know. That's amazing, the cancer yeah. thing. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. Devilish fairy. Yeah. That's what cancer is. Exactly. I mean, Irish is potent, you know, and it just makes you, the minute you go into it, you suddenly see the world entirely differently. And it's that sense of connection to land that the very essence of the language is that it's, it's part of the landscape. It's even. But it's almost, but it's almost from this conversation, it's almost like it's part of the, the answer. Like, and the language is the key to get us back to the land and to a simpler lifestyle, which which you've been kind of living for the last number of time, which is, you know, as you said, building, trying to build structure out of natural materials, mm-hmm. try to get our hands in the soil because they release serotonin in our brains, grow our own vegetables, swim in cold bodies of water if you are fortunate enough to live near one. And lang- the language brings us back to this place in a sense. And, and, and that it ties us community, back to that sense of community. Yeah. Yeah, and so last year I did a project, or for Galway 2020, called Sea Tamagotchi. It was a silly name, which was from something else. But basically, I went around to fishermen and folklorists in the remote peninsulas in Donegal, Mayo and Galway, and I asked them the words for coastal things, sea terms, coastal ideas. Oh, and we, have the book. we have the book. The exact, the lovely Sea Tamagotchi book. So there were 250 of these words I recorded from different fishermen, and I split them into little one-minute audio sections. Some of them were gas, some of them were like... Really dark. We were reading some miserable. Like I, I think in the book, there's only about fifty of them or something. That's and we, you tried for every morning, you'd read one of them out, and it was like, <laughs> oh no, that's very depressing. Do another one. Oh no, that's very depressing. Give us another one, Dave. Yeah, some of them were like a wild Canamara woman with some, you know, like it was. It was <laughs> or, or some of them were like kind of like when the seas calm and you can hear the morning and, and the you feel like and you feel like killing yourself. Exactly. There's plenty of misery in our past. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kablu, isn't it? Kablu. 
is um, the otherworldly voices that you hear on the shore when you're walking at night. But so there were a lot of romantic words that give insight into our philosophical mindset, our psychological mindset in long ago. But really, you can also find those words. So what I did, I put each one of those words every day. I put them out on um, on Instagram as a little audio piece. And I'll, th- that was in January and February and March. But I'll read you that maybe in a few months because they're gorgeous and little videos for about 30 of them. But the, the words for, there's many practical words. And let's say we do need to start growing our own food again. Let's say Richard, your guest, was, was right. We do need to grow locally. We know that there is unlimited um, shellfish and fish in this country for the Irish people, as long as we don't ex- use factory fishes, uh, factory ships and export it all. So, but we need to know how to do it. And a word like boroite can unlock that. Boroite means it's a reef. It's a hidden reef, a rocks under the shore that no one would know unless fishermen know they've they are passed down to generation on which a lot of different kelp grow. And in these kelp is rockfish. And the fishermen always knew they just needed to go out to the invisible Boroita and put down their nets over there, or their lines, and they would catch, catch balon ras, catch uh, ras or rockfish. And the fishermen, there was always, there's a few, there was a, a lot of Boroita. They knew where they were. If we don't know that, if we don't know where they are, we are, um, we are helpless. Like Kalyantorach means weather forecasting by looking at natural phenomena. Again, if we lose the techniques and the knowledge, the wisdom that's in the Kalyantorach, if we don't understand suddenly what a bulltog means, and a bulltog means it's a shaft or a ray of a light that you see on the other side of the sun and it shows bad weather is coming. So all Beautiful of the word. words, yeah, for the fish, the shellfish, the seaweeds that are on our shore are still preserved in the Irish language. All of the ways of getting them and the thousands of years of built up knowledge about the best ways of dealing with those treacherous waves and water and of the weather is also encoded within it. So there is a lot of value of richness if we do want to live a more sustainable way within Untangled it's, it's an incredible word, like that word that you used, encoded. Because nowadays it seems like, you know, there's there's the monoculture across the world, really. You know, there's capitalism and consumerism and no matter where you go, whatever high street you go and it seems to be similar shop. Not that I've travelled anywhere in the last couple of years, but there seems to be the similar shops and there's more as... Uh, Helena Norberg Hodge she said like supposedly over the next 50 years or a period of time will only have a, a number of languages because all these are the, so there's there's almost like an homogenization process happening and as you're saying this that word encoding we're like we're looking for roots and keys to give us an alternative way of life it's almost to connect us to a greater sense of ourselves and a greater a kind of deeper part of ourselves mm-hmm. that it's kind of taking ourselves out of our brain and more into our into our guts and into mm-hmm. our heart and into our sense of our body kind of helping ourselves embody ourselves more yeah. so how do we do this before we're forced to do it uh, I mean I, I'm probably too rosy-eyed but as I said earlier I that's see that's good rosy-eyed is great yeah, great, yeah. yeah. I do Bushy-tailed. I do see it happening naturally I do see a force rising up like you know we've been interested you guys and I've been interested in this for you know 20 year, more more years People, this was always marginal. It's now getting centre stream. And the more pressure and the more of these negative thoughts of people saying, of big institutions saying, my system doesn't work anymore, people are going to go back to these answers. And the the great fortune in Ireland is all of the wisdom is still there. You can meet people who know how to build baskets and anything, different types of ropes out of things they find in their surroundings. All of these ways of growing, of fishing, of umar, of growing ridges that have been preserved. Uh, you know, I was up in Mayo last week looking at 
growing ridges, cultivation ridges that were used for emmer, a type of you know wheat and barley that were used four and a half thousand years ago, five thousand years ago during the Bronze Age. They're still visible in the soil today. So we just like happened after the last after the collapse of the Roman Empire, when the Dark Ages spread across Europe and people lost all of their books, their libraries, the Hun and the Visigoths came down from Northern Europe, wiped out all wisdom, all knowledge. And who was it who came back with their wisdom? Those marginal, weird, oddball hobbits and hermits in Ireland came back and brought the light of of enlightenment and Renee and sort of widespread nature-based thinking back to Europe. We've done it once. We were the lighthouses, shining hope. It was it was sort of a Christian-infused hope, but there's a lot of beauty in Christianity too, back to Europe. We can still do that. And then that actually happened, that there was, you know, the Irish people had to come yeah. connect people back to well, nature. Once Ireland was the land of saints and scholars, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. And, and it's, you're speaking of this almost, this well, now sense of Ireland. Well, now the land of tech companies. And <laughs> exactly, yeah. You know, Amer- American tech companies. Yeah. American tech companies, tech companies and pharmaceutical not companies. Not avoiding, evading. But yeah, so during the Dark Ages, Europe lost all of its libraries. Everything was destroyed, all of its central regal systems. You know, everything was gone and there was this new sort of... Um, you know, uh, sort of a violent force was taken over. All the philosophy and the wisdom had been that had been grown up was was gone. And Ireland still had it in our libraries because we were never part of that, and we brought it back. Now that Christianity was patriarchal; it was male focused, it was hierarchical, but it had a key. It had a beautiful visionary voice in terms of Jesus Christ at the beginning of it, and particularly Irish Christianity, because when Saint Patrick came in 430 AD, we took on some of that, just like the Tarahumara and mountain runners in in Mexico took on some of the Jesuit stuff they took on their clothes and some of their wisdom but they kept their connection with landscape we did the same in Ireland we took some of the rules of, of you know St. Patrick and Jesus and the Virgin Mary but we absolutely like look at our holy wells our holy rivers we realised that nature was sacred so we brought some of those knowledge back to Europe and you can find it still in monasteries in Germany in Austria and Switzerland the teachings of mon- Irish monastic figures who came back from America, from Ireland and brought the wisdom and it's just we're being called to do the same again, maybe. Wow. Like like this conversation now has me thinking there about like how do we move from these people living in towns, li- doing jobs mostly on computers and being busy to kind of have enough money to buy the Christmas presents and buy the groceries and go on mm. a holiday and, and geez, we need a new car and whatever yeah. and all these type of things mm-hmm. to kind of go on. How do we get the space to connect back to nature? Because ultimately what you're saying is that we've, you know, the Irish language, our roots, our history, our ancestry is really to bring us back to nature and to this simpler form of life. Mm-hmm. And any thoughts on how the heck we do that? Because even I, I, I remember reading, um, sorry to cut in like oh, that, wow. um, autobiography of a yogi. And I remember, yeah. obviously it might be fictional to many people and it can come across weird. But I, I remember fascinated that instead of playing like say top trumps of like various different transformers that were stronger than the other one he used to look at ones of of kind of spiritual spiritual masters and used to read them and just idealized them and that sense of enlightenment and that that was success was the more sense of connection you had within Mm -hmm. yourself and with that sense of light that, that, that could pass through you um, which I th- thought was amazing. Yeah. There's a book, Autobiography of a Yogi by pra- Paramahansa Yogananda, well which I tried reading a couple of times and I found it too fictional. I, I bought it again, recently to read it again because I found it so... It I was, love you know, think it was fiction? I didn't realise well, that. Well, does fiction I, mean that it's made up? Yeah. I, I, yeah. It, no, it just, I, it, I guess it's written from the perspective it's an autobiography, yeah. but to many people could come across as fictional, you know, because it's okay. quite metaphysical like it's yeah. metaphysical and it's somewhat you know less scientific and more of spirit far out yeah 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 so it could when, seem when very far when you talk out. there i got this this sort of chills through me because uh, like 
all of her Irish saints are oddball weird. Saint Cullum Kill, Saint Moncon, Saint Fiachra, Saint Fechin. They all competed of who was more rooted to nature. So St. Colm Kill said, I can survive on just the buller, which is the watercress, and one particular moss from somewhere else. I can get all my nutrients from someone else. Another one, so many of them, gave all their respect to either bees or the wild deer or the wild pigs. They were so rooted in nature and they competed for who was more in tune with nature. Who was more nature. natural. Yeah. But anyway... Um, you're asking the question of what we need to do. Instead, what we could instead do. of doing instead of doing triathlons and marathons, they were like out competing one another. Who can be more aesthetic <laughs> in a natural sense? Aesthetic, whatever that word is, you know. Aesthetic, like not aesthetic. Aesthetic, aesthetic is like more. Sorry, yeah, you know what I mean. Aesthetic you know, yeah. is like more spiritual. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like. Uh, you know, you drive around Ireland now. You go up to Donegal. You go to Leitrim. You go to. I was out in Shirkin Island. Everything is gorse and heather. And bracken is coming back everywhere. We are no longer farming most of our land. You know, there are a few major dairy farmers in the Midlands and in Tipperary growing. But otherwise, so much of our land is going back to wilderness. All of the islands are going back to wilderness. There is unlimited amount of underused land in this country. And whatever the land we are using, as we know, is badly managed. It has, you know, cattle on it, the most inefficient way of growing food. So... We know there is mass, and we know Ireland probably does have the best climate in the entire, it definitely has the best climate in the entire world for growing trees. Like I did a 10 part series on trees and every single tree expert in Ireland and abroad assured me of that. Trees, there's nowhere in the world the trees grow faster, which isn't necessarily a good in thing. It's why, yeah, it's why there are spruce grows Not so Not like the quick. rainforest. No, no You no. would think it's like in, in Costa Rica and, you know, if you go travel to, yeah, I've yeah. been in Borneo and there was mm-hmm. so much life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you get, you get a hardwood even will grow fast there. What's the difference? Well, so it, compared to North American Canada, they go, they close for winter. You know, they lose. But um, why is Ireland better than a tropical rainforest? I knew the answer to that, but I can't think no, now. Can. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. Well, for all those deciduous trees, they need, you know, for the trees we grow out here, they need this d- 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 sort of dormant period. But we'll always, they'll have a smaller and shorter dormant period in Ireland. Anyway, so. You can make up the headway and get ahead. Exactly. Um, we can recovery. <laughs> yeah. What was I saying? Oh yeah. So the so yeah, Ireland has a phenomenal environment for growing things. We have this sea that is more vibrant and as we know, you know, science has shown although there's a lot of pollution in the sea, seas can bounce back quicker than anything else if the right steps are taken. Um, so we have those two elements and we also have this, the, one, the other element I want to take is when I worked on the farm in, with Mark Michel in Kilpeder in Wicklow all those years, the one thing I realised, I do not want to farm all day long and very few people want to farm actual farm without machinery all day long. It's backbreaking. It's nourishing for an hour or two hours. It increases the serotonin. Eight hours is tough. So what I'm saying is that, and yet every single person benefits from going out into nature for an hour or two, you know, like there's no medicine, no doctor will, will dispute that. We know our mental health, our body health, everything improves by being out in nature, by working with the land in any way, by exercising with the soil. So if all of us were to do that, were part of our day had an ability to grow out, go out and grow vegetables or just work in nature or just rotate or just turn a compost heap do something on the land in a community setting we know it's going to benefit us we know we're going to enjoy it we know we will not enjoy it if we're doing eight hours a day all day long so the thing is you're mixing things you're creating communities even people in old age homes even all the people in with all the young boys now who have mental you know who have mental depression and instability and psychological all psychological homes people would be out growing in nature which was something that was done you know we got rid of it unfortunately um 
everyone is going to benefit by spending some of their time out working in nature. Everyone is going to, most people find it exhausting to do hours uh, of working in nature. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, so, so what we need to do is start using that, recreate society. And even with COVID, thanks to this idea of people bringing in the working, their living wage, it's the beginning of this. The state might be paying people a salary to guarantee a certain level of income. Then we can work on our computers for four so hours a day. I never thought of that. Like, and to, then we to grow see veg. that this is a precursor for the living wage. So the idea of the living wage for anyone who doesn't know, it's this sense of instead of us all, you know, necessarily doing jobs that we may, may not like, it's a sense of that we get a certain income with which well, we can universal basic universal income. basic income which we, which we can survive and then we can try to pursue careers that we enjoy and they're more fulfilling creative and, and creative and can add more value to society yeah. in the long run yeah so we spend you know maybe two hours growing the vegetables maybe we spend two hours making baskets or weaving if we want to or knitting if that's something that inspires us this is Mankon's idyllic life now <laughs> Mankon's <laughs> idyllic picture of the future it have, it's for me yeah, or we could just spend hours all day long watching old movies on Netflix like the, on ah! Netflix you know with uh, maybe not with a data how do you get over the data centre problem there's ways I mean data centres aren't a problem if you're in an area in Iceland which is unlimited energy yeah, the problem yeah. is data centres in Ireland um, so I can solve the problem very easy for Ireland. It's harder in post-industrial countries with vast populations like Poland or Germany. There it's going to take a, a, a niggle. But in Ireland, it's very easy how we could all in feed... Poland, I, wait, 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 I just want to hear okay, sorry, yes. story here, right. In Ireland, we could all feed ourselves incredibly uh, easily, incredibly healthily. Even with, in Dublin and like very urbanised towns. But even, Dave, if you think about it, like... Holland is one of the biggest producers of vegetables in the world. It's it's half the size of Ireland with four times the population density. So like there are highly efficient means with which to grow fruit yeah. and vegetables. Yeah. And I think Holland or the Netherlands is one of mm. an incredible example of remarkable yeah. efficiency. And I, I'm such an inefficient grower. I'm such a bad grower. I don't even much care. I grow far too much vegetables, far too much food. Like I just don't know what to do. My girlfriend was a cafe in Dublin. She's always mortified. She'd sell the cafe, give the I just try and give the food away. It, it's just, it's too easy to grow food in Ireland. And you know, wow. there's some types of kales that'll self-seed. So you just grow them once and you never need to grow them again. Is it Siberian kale is the one, yeah. And then, um, then and how, what do how you much, have and what do you, you grow? Do you have like an acre that you're growing beds or half an acre? Probably, yeah, max half an acre, probably a quarter of an acre. I have the polytunnel and then a quarter of an acre and masses of, you know, Jerusalem artichokes at the moment, just looking at them everywhere. Um, you know, loads of pumpkins and squash, beans, broad beans in the polytunnel now. There's loads of peppers peppers, there's tomatoes, there's um, all the little lettuces, there's winter things coming on. Um, but so, yeah, we know how to grow vegetables. We know how we can, we want to be doing practical things during the day. And most of us now are doing some sort of computer work. But if you did set up that, if Ireland did become this beacon land where people were were healthy, the medical, you know, the health service, the fees would drop hugely if people were eating food from the land and were actually working in the land every day. If all of these things were happening, people felt rooted within a language that was that was an indigenous native language that had been spoken in the island for 3,000 years, so it would plug us in to that sense of self that we haven't had, particularly now at the end of Christianity, we would start becoming really potent, would have shined to us, and suddenly other people would be looking at us, and they would be sending their young to us particularly. We would become a centre of education again, just like the monasteries were thousands of years ago, and we would be inspiring people we'll be learning because this is not just going to happen in Ireland it's going to happen in parts of Portugal and parts of Mexico and parts of South America all over the world there will be these citadels of people who are rooted to essence to essentialness um, and all of the factors are just ready in Ireland and in fact it's all happening naturally as we speak 
which it's is right. They're two amazing. That's words. that's a great vision. I love I, that. I it does words again. Potent and citadel. <laughs> citadel is oh, a beautiful. That was poetic. <laughs> that was just glorious. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed. I want to be potent when I grow up. Dave, you're very potent. Potent, brilliant. Yeah. And mm-hmm. a citadel. Could we live in a citadel? <laughs> That'd be cool. It sounds like something out of like Lord of the Rings. Hmm. Full of potent people. But I like that that, that, world. that kind of sense of vision for Ireland, or the mm-hmm. sense of for anyone listening, wherever you're living, that sense of. You know, I think the main take homes that I'm getting, it's a sense of connecting to land, the sense of trying to you, know, you connect ourselves to land, connect ourselves to the sense of almost like, is it history? Is it a sense of tradition, this sense of realizing that we're part of the web of life and, you mm-hmm. know, we'll move on and we'll re- change form in time, please, you know, whatever way it's mm-hmm. going to be. Um, I, I, the, the bit which I'm str- like the vision is wonderful mm-hmm. I, I totally subscribe to it the bit which I can't quite I, I need a bridge to get me from current modern life yeah, yeah. to kind of go okay so we just grow stuff and we become potent in our citadels and where do we <laughs> where does this bridge come yeah. like because I'm kind of going I just see a lot of people really busy doing stuff to be really uh, busy included, to keep us included us. Yeah, I, yeah. I see it myself yeah. first and foremost who's just got a mortgage aka a death grip mm-hmm. you know that's the root mm-hmm. of the word and I kind of go, wow, yeah. okay. And, you know. Yeah. I never thought about the meaning of mortgage Mortgage, before. yeah. The French Very word good. more death yeah, yeah. than gorge. Oh, uh, yeah. Grip. Probably um, it's a word of even engagement or gage. Um, <laughs> death <laughs> engagement. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it really wise to point out that idea of how to get. It's I, I can't, I mean, potentially it could be smooth and easy, but the likelihood is it's not going to be smooth and easy. That there's going to be things, there's going to be despair reached first like we saw all of those benefits that came out of, of Ireland people walk uh, the COVID people walking more people growing their own food people only came out of the fear that of the sudden you know essential existential fear that came with COVID so it's likely that any of these steps will only be done um with you know the collapse of certain things and, and a sense of desperation and with that will come up fear and then other people will try and grab like I remember when COVID came and I was really worried uh, we were all worried and I thought well I have my my feet my polyton is full of Lalo Rosso and you know different types of baby gem lettuce and I thought but what am I going to do if all the neighbours come am I going to get a machine gun you know and to protect, protect them my, yeah. they're my lettuce yeah and that's actually what happened with the screamers with the Atlantis up in Colombia the FARC gorilla tried to attack them weeks before I was there they attacked them stole all their money and they were thinking they were going to arm themselves so the reality is like okay if i'm right by saying there is a genuine rising of consciousness and it if it is it's a female consciousness which we've heard about since we laughed as kids about the whole idea of the age of atlantis the age of Atla- aquarius, aquarius yeah, yeah you know things. which is the 60s we're singing about it was basically a female rising a ri- and a female means togetherness means nourishing means community moving away from the patriarchy yeah so if that is happening it's going to take generations it's not a decade thing do you know both my movement towards my idyllic ireland and then this female energy but I've never seen the signs of it as obviously as clear as I can see them now and that gives me great hope and it makes me think okay I just want to continue on this path to show there are ways of doing it and I you know it just happens that so many of the people I know are doing that in different ways I was very involved with the the building of Moy Hill Community Farm where you know three professional surfers set up a farm in Clare and now I'm involved with the sort of an offshoot of that called Home Tree where two of the world professional surfers are now just growing vast amounts of trees and regenerating land and you just see how how First, the land, how the trees grow so quick, how the land regenerates, how we can grow food and how healthy it makes us all. And this idea 
once we realize that we're connected to something ancient, that, you know, all of those holy wells actually bring us into another world, that the word she, the word fairy in Irish she, is actually the same root as Siddha, an enlightened being in India, we suddenly get that same feeling that when you meet an indigenous elder from any country, you know, you meet them and they seem that they are rock solid. You meet a Maori, you meet a Native American, you meet a Tarahamara Indian, and they feel rooted some way because they know who they are. Then you meet an American or an Australian or a European or a modern Irish person and we're flimsy and tossed all over because we don't know who we are. If we do root back to our indigenous or native essence, we suddenly become really powerful. Nothing's going to get us. And that's the basis from which you rebuild. We this become society. potent. We become potent. Potent citadel. Yeah, then the Colini. The Colini become more potent than the Bukali. I, I bring it on. <laughs> Genuinely. Yeah. You know. I hope. Yeah. Wow. So exciting! So much to be excited about. <laughs> yeah. But but even that sense of like I'm trying to get my in my own head, mm-hmm. and I think you described it really well. That sense of bridge to go like our current paradigm of life is you know the underlying ideology is like need to work, make money, have house, build, make house bigger, have more possessions, maybe start a family, Future. maybe not start a family, safety, safety, safety yeah. accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. And then yeah, as we start getting older, maybe it's like, actually, I should really le- learn more about myself, mm-hmm. possibly. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of generally some of the underlying ideology. And the one that you're kind of suggesting is this sense of rather than seeking this materialism, it's to find this sense of space. I remember when we were talking with Bruce Parry, or, he, he, in one of his documentaries, he, was, he, he spoke about that many of these indigenous cultures, they simply work for two to three hours a day to satisfy their basic needs. And the rest of the time, they're relaxing, even, they're playing with their kids, or they're just kind of hanging around. And they had that sense of space and that sense of ease. And they were more like human beings as opposed to human doings. And similarly, when you kind of spoke of that sense of... Um, I think it was you said the Irish language or it was it gave that sense of more equality, that sense of it didn't have that hierarchy and built in. And I think it's that m- moving more to that sense of us as being not dominion over nature, but that sense of we're an intrinsic part or we're one of the gatekeepers or, or minders or, or custodians. I think that's a nice word. Mm-hmm. Reverence. Does yeah. that help us become more potent? Potent citadels. Potent citadels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that idea. Um, yeah, like you're, you're so right. So, like you and I have heard of these conversations when we were backpacking years ago the amount we had the exact same conversation in you know backpacker hostels all over the world there's nothing new about what I'm saying those people that I rejected in West Cork and East Clare the New Agers 25 years ago were having those conversations they're just what dreamers and aspirational like hippies talk about okay all of it was irrelevant until now like in the last week, what has the world said? What has the government said? The old economic model of constant progress, of constant consuming, of constant growth no longer works. So, so many of us have felt that, felt that, but we've always been on the margins, always screaming into the void. Now the mainstream is finally realizing it. So everything is off the table. This is an entire new world we are living in where all of the old, the old um, certainties and bases and grounded bases, the foundations of reality for the last 150 years at least since the Industrial Revolution, maybe since, you know, the b- birth of a controlling type of Christianity where everything was about growing and taking over and amassing. And expanding. Yeah, it's all gone. It's all going, it's all crumbling, and people are desperately searching in the void for what to replace it with. So, like, if, what, if, the, if the reports out from the UN are true, then everyone's 
money. You know, mortgages, more, it's much better to have a mortgage now if that is true, that everything in society is going to have to be rethought. Because suddenly the stock exchange is going to go. If we cannot keep on growing, which is clearly what every scientist has said in the world, we cannot keep on growing. That, again, Richard said, this is what the stock exchange, the stock exchange are based on. So your money, your shares, your... I mean, I don't want to, talk to, to, to spread fear, but they cannot survive anymore. That thing of your money is constantly going to grow, your pension is going to grow. We are going to go back to a simpler life. It's going to be your kale's chaotic. Go, your kale is going to grow. Your yeah. potatoes are going to grow. Yeah. yeah, it's going to be frightening, but it's exactly what you said. We will feel there will be space. There'll be time. It's like what Bruce said to you. There'll be time for other things. It's going to be really scary. If we think COVID, the beginning of COVID was scary, we didn't know what's going to happen. The next shift is going to be really scary. When's it coming? And how long uh, is it going to last? I don't know. <laughs> this is a generational move. All of these things we're talking about are generational. Generation means until we die. like uh, Yeah, exactly. Longer. It's a few lives. It's, you know, you're, you, we see the beginnings of it, then your kids see something else, and then your grandkids. Oh, I'd love to watch this whole thing. This sounds really fun. Yeah. Well, really, if you can expand your consciousness, maybe you could see it all. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It's such an honour to be here speaking, right at the speaking beginning. Speaking of expanded consciousness, mm-hmm. um, you know the way like there's other cultures where they talk, and we can start wrapping the show up after this, but uh, you know, like you see, you hear of these other tribes where they use, you know, like Bruce Perry talked about, there was lots of tribes where part of a, a kind of rite of passage was some kind of, some uh, plant medicine, such as ayahuasca, these other type of things that kind of catalyzed growth and opened doors to spiritual realms and things like this. In ancient, like you obviously have read a lot about ancient Irish cultures. What were the tools or the plant medicines that people used in Ireland or did they use or was the writings and, on and it? Can I add to that? I, I was in like the stone date theory, the idea that, you know, part of the evolution as we did to go from uh, apes to homo sapiens or homo erectus or whatever the word is, excuse me if I'm incorrect, was that part of taking, this is a theory now, I I remember hearing Paul Stamets talk about it, but this sense of the consumption of psychedelic mushrooms, natural occurring psychedelic substance within these mushrooms helped expand human consciousness. Expand the brain, kind of two or three fold cortex, a couple of thousand years. Yeah. Um, and again, when you think, where did the spores of the mushrooms come from? Again, I think Stamens has talked about that. Like we know most things in Ireland, you know, most things in Europe, in the world developed out of carbon and different atoms in the world. But spores of mushrooms can go beyond the atmosphere, beyond the stratosphere and out into the the abyss. OK, so potentially those spores, which and we know mushrooms have ways of making the world, making the brain access sources of knowledge or at least perceive that they're accessing sources of knowledge that are beyond the ability of the human brain to think at least that's how we feel it is now those spores could have come out of the big bang uh, the, uh, the, the mire which created cells which created amoebas which created dinosaurs but they also could have floated from across the cosmos from another dimension another planet into our planet with that wisdom we always have to ex- uh, believe that that's a plausible theory when it comes to mushrooms that this could be consciousness from beyond from the Pleiades or somewhere else that's coming to us we can never prove that but with regard to the Irish language and wisdom um, again it was the women who had the knowledge who had all the plants in fact Oh, on Thursday, I have this, you know, Instagram that I was saying, I was giving C words and now I've been giving words from, from 32 words for a field. But from next her Friday, on, for the next two weeks, I'm giving 
every two days I'm releasing a video clip of a woman in Donegal who's got very bad English but beautiful Irish and she's a herbalist who knows all the herbs of the bog of her bog in, in Gweedor in County Donegal and she tells me all of the different herbal remedies connect to each herbs they're beautiful the, the knowledge some of this knowledge the vast knowledge of the, of the healing qualities of nature and herbs that the women had is still being preserved. So much of it has been lost. But there's like gorgeous words, like like the word brot, which means a film on an animal's eye that healed, that is healed by a hare's blood. Or schlauen, which is a sty on the eye that's cured with post poultice of bread and cat's urine. The women had this whole knowledge. They also had knowledge of psychological, of psychiatric, of psychedelic. psychedelic substances. There's very little left in written down that's provable now. There's a few accounts of magic mushrooms, of liberty caps being used in wakes. And according to Professor Richard Carney, it was actually, according to his one account in the Folklore Commission in UCD, it was the men who took the mushrooms. So the wake was had, everyone would come, the women would wail over the corpse, the women would leave then at a certain time, and at night the men would fry up the liberty caps and take them. So, because, fry them up yeah and eat them so the women had dealt with their emotions because the women were better at getting in touch with their emotions and were able to keen for the men to get in touch to process the emotion of the death they took the liberty caps in the evening time liberty the sense of freedom exactly yeah freedom I presume they're called liberty isn't that yes, one word yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. and you know there's quite a few there's rough accounts as well um, anecdotal accounts of women prescribing them for men who had de- for boys or people who had depression and uh, you know psychological uh, concerns but that's all there's, there's a lot of comments about maybe the Amanita muscaria you know the fly agaric mushroom yeah. the red and with the white spots that being used it seems to it's just like with all mythologies around the world it appears a lot Cuchulain you know has the Amanita muscaria and there's some talk that the Riestra the battle spasm that Cuchulain gets into in the Tynebog there's accounts of his eyes popping out and his hair exploding and him basically becoming the Hulk the Incredible Hulk that that is based on berserkers the Viking it's a similar thing to what the Vikings used to do where they would take ingest the fly agaric when it had been put through the belly of the deer and were able to get the hallucinogenic property and go into into warfare as a manic you know war fueled beast wow mm. cool yeah yeah I love that. All of this awaits us, you know, awaits to be explored if we turn back to our heritage. If we turn we just back. have to go over the bridge. How do we get to the bridge? Uh-huh. We get to the bridge by going to the UCD Folklore Archive, which is all duchas.ie. All of the accounts that were written in the 1930s and even some back to the 1890s of folklore are on that available a lot of it in English we go to the Museum of Country Life in Castle Bar we see how everything was made except for mobile phones and things you know but made out of natural objects and we go back into the Irish language like I'm gonna and it's also like almost like a sense of upskilling ourselves going beyond that sense you know moder- a lot of modern day life we're compartmentalised I'm an accountant and that's all or I do and at the weekend I'm a person of le- leisure and then I am actually an architect. And mm. after that, I'm a person of leisure where we're all humans that are multifaceted. And I think the more we start to learn different skills, mm. the more we feel useful and more like, oh my God, I'm like a Swiss army knife. I can do this and I can do this and yeah, I can try yeah. that and that. And that. Oh my yeah. God, I feel so good about myself. Totally. I'm useful. And I'd be worried if people were really happy with the status quo now. But the reality is no one is happy. We all feel, as you say, we're overworked. We, we, our lives have little meaning and we want more meaning. We want more connection. We want more time with people who mean the most to us. 
all of the steps that I'm outlining bring all that. Yes, they have some costs. We don't have as much income coming in. We don't get to do 10 holidays a week, a year, but we find so much more meaning and rootedness in our lives. It's a massive transformation, but it can only uh, lead to, to growth, you know? So whatever. I was a travel journalist for 20 years. In February of 2020, I just gave up travel as for travel journalism and for holidays. It's It was petrifying first. And then I thought, no, the world is in front of me. I can just take trains. I might take a flight once a year for, a, for work conditions. But otherwise, you just change and you realise it's not about doing without. It's actually about finding loads more richness. As everybody in Ireland found this year by being forced to holiday in Ireland. These are not radical hippy-dippy thoughts anymore. I've certainly found the same because... We used to travel so much with work, like going to London and going, I don't know where the heck we were going, but we were busy all the time on planes most weeks or certainly a couple of times a month. And I haven't obviously traveled since February 2020. And for probably the first year, I, I noticed myself going, I, geez, I, give, I give so much just to get away, get away from myself. And then I started realizing that, geez, if I just, you know, there's lots of beauty here and to find joy in the simple is the real challenge, you know, without the distraction. Mm-hmm. Too true. Yeah. Too true. There we go. Wow, Monk, on this great conversation. Thank <laughs> you. It really opens, you know, really goes back to those idealistic, um, existential kind of thoughts, that sense of where can I find more meaning? Where can I find that sense of connection? I think a lot of the practical suggestions that you sent go back to an indigenous language, a language that is connected to the earth. English is only about 800 to 1,000 years old versus Irish is two, two, two and a half, three thousand years old, it's estimated. It's this indigenous language that is very poetic. Even that sense of, I learned the word for uh, seaweed or jellyfish, jellyfish, smuggler on, which actually directly translated meal, seal snot. Like <laughs> hilarious, that yeah. sense of like, again, connectedness. Like there's so much of this, I'm sure you could discuss. You'd Watching have, we're a mermaid, I like that one. Or oh, she-og is a fairy, isn't it? A she That's right, yeah, yeah. I thought those were just so beautiful. 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 Yeah, very beautiful. But it really is. But, but then, then you spoke of okay. So beyond language, you sent that spoke of getting our hands in the soil, growing our own food, getting that sense of connection, trying to avoid a mortgage if one can. You well, know, I don't know many people that can, but I think think it's really. But it gives but, an ideal. It's a dream. It's but a there's also an underlying theme which has come out over the last number of podcasts, which is that it's almost like that we're gearing up for a massive time of change, of global change, and to kind of just be ready for little rocky waters and kind of you know. Get ready up for upskill. I think that sense of upskill, finding yeah. more diversity, like the one and thing that probably, and probably and probably I'm sorry, I'm going to sorry for cutting you off there. It was so just big. that uh, the more the more people in your lives, the more likely you are to sustain these kind it of impacts. It was Kev Cal that said that. I remember Kev Cal came back at the start of the recession, and maybe it was 2008, and came back, and no one had jobs. And Kev came back from traveling, and within a week he'd lined up like. Painting a house, painting a house, and cutting someone's grass, and painting a fence, and doing something or other. And Kev said, "I think, I think more friends builds resilience. The you more know, people mm. you have, the more friends you have, the more you are resilient you are to recessions." Wow. And, things like and I think again, it's that sense of more diversity and that sense of inclusion, and a sense of togetherness. Because often the idea of if there is this kind of you know big, huge problem and change coming, it's the sense I'm going to my own bunker and satisfy my or mm. save myself. But I think it was who was it? It was um, Jonathan. Um, one of the wonderful people we've got to speak to, he, he said it was the sense of not isolating yourself. It's the, the time of togetherness. That's it's, it's mm. the sense of coming together. We're a lot more resilient and helping each other and sharing of knowledge and sharing of information and, you know, helping each other through this. This is when we're at our strongest. Yeah. 
who is that? The woman, not Rosemary, you mentioned her before, who talked, it was on your talk, and she talked about communities. Helene and Yerberg Hodge, yes. Helene, like dead. you, all of the answers are actually on this podcast that you've already put together. You're putting a lot of, you know, a lot of information, a lot of potent information out there in these talks. Certainly where it's been our own school of education, which has been... Monkung, can you talk about your book? Because I think your book... 32 words for field. I know to read it very well. I, I, I went yeah. to get, go get a copy in the library, but I didn't, didn't do it, but it's no. on my list. Yeah, 32 words for field is... Um, let me think. I have a copy in the car. I'll give you a copy. But uh, it's... Uh, it's yeah. So it's a book that's about the Irish language. And what it is, it, it gives the insights into... It shows how the Irish language gives insights into the land, into the landscape, into our culture, into our psyche, into the other world. So, you know, Irish language, we talk about in loads of different ways. But actually, if we do that, if we use it as a key to open up other things, and it does it in loads of playful ways. And so then in October this year, I have a new book coming out, an illustrated book about for kids, about natu- about evocative words uh, for nature, uh, with beautiful, with heavily illustrated, and that book is called it's called Tree Dogs, Banshee Fingers, and other words for nature, or something like that. Wow! Uh, and then in a few weeks, I'm going to start an online a nine week training session in Irish language for people with the Trailblazery, which is this group which organises like online seminars and sessions, and we're just going to have some of the greatest inspirational Irish people teaching what saying what Irish means to them and in the process giving a few words along with the Can way. Can we sign up for that? You're more than welcome to. Well yeah, you got exactly. two, one and two here. <laughs> perfect, perfect. And then I have a, a theatre show called the Raw Nagazim where I bake sourdough bread, the audience churn butter and all of the ideas that are in 32 words for field are in that show. So I'm going to do a nationwide tour of that in October for about five weeks I think. Um, I don't know how, like the audience would always churn the butter, okay, and I'd bake the bread and then I'd use those as metaphors for the ideas. But how are people going to churn the butter with COVID? I just need to get my head around all that stuff first. The solution will come, it will Hopefully. arrive. Exactly, exactly. I like that. It's, it's a coming. <laughs> Have faith. Yeah, otherwise I will just spread germs throughout the whole of the country. I'll become my own little, uh, what is it? No, Spore. Typhoon Mary. Master exactly. spreader. <laughs> Master spreader. An incredible culture. Yeah, exactly. Incredibly which. great. Yeah. Uh, but thank you, Monk, and you, you're brilliant, you're amazing. Thank you to get to talk in person. It's been a real joy. And uh, people can find out more. On, do you have a website? Yeah. We do moncon.com. Yeah. And then Instagram awesome. and Twitter is Moncon McGann as well. And how do you spell Moncon? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that's a that's a M A N C H A N. Well done. M A N C H A N. Yeah, exactly. M-A-G-A-N. M-A-G-A-N. Oh, very Mon-Con good. Moncon Very good. Yeah. I don't know what her fault. Well, yeah. thank you, Moncon. You're brilliant. Mila Buena, Steve. Mila Buena. Gurmila well done, Monk. That was great crack. Great. Great. But, but I like the way you say otherworldly as well. You know, it's like the Irish language can be a key to the other world. That's a bit that, that I, like, obviously there's three idealists sitting here in a room and three dreamers to some degree. Rose tinted glasses. That otherworldly, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like the amount of, yeah, you know, there's, I talk in the book about counter and alter, which is counter is this district, this word alter, the other world. There are the amount of different ways that Irish is about the other world. In fact, most of it is in the other world. And all those do all the folklore in Dukas.ie, it's all about talking about the other world. You know, until the Because modern day English, yeah, turn this back, turn, turn that back. This is some of the good this is really interesting stuff too. Are we still recording, Tony? Like even that sense of like um uh, English is a very practical language and it like it a lot of its use is down kind of science, logic, rational. It's all about you know, it's very using one side of our brain. Whereas and, I think and the, and the this one, sense of Irish seems to be a lot more or other languages. I know I know for myself I speak a number of different languages. And when I speak a different language, it's almost like it expresses a different side of me. Like when I speak Spanish, I feel more playful and more like just having that bit of just 
play, it feels more playful. If I speak French, it feels a lot more. German feels even more. Polish feels pretty kind of, you know, and I love Polish. I do my wife's Polish and I love Poland, but it's a wonderful language to give out in. Whenever I give out to my kids, I always give out to them in Polish because it's just so, you just get it out so straight. It's very forthright and very wonderful. And I think Irish seems to be very nuanced, as you just mentioned, to the other world, to this sense of seeing the world beyond science, logic, what we can touch, what we can see, what we can smell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like there's a word, there's a word pukin. Pukin means... Um, well, it means a blindfold, okay, and, invi- and um, a, a metal sheet, thin shield for putting over a thieving cow's eyes. But it also means an, a, 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 a magical blanket that allows otherworldly beings appear invisible in this world. A magical blanket that allows otherworldly beings appear invisible in this world. And it was just natural for Ireland, for Irish people, up until the 30s or the 40s, that there were people who were able to go from one area to the other. That there were beings who would come into this world from the other area. So you know the word counter. Counter means a district or a place or locality. Even my English fuel well, mind finds it hard to even get my head around that. To go from this world to another How world. How do I get into that pookie? That sounds cool. Yeah, I mean, this was... So, you know, people got so lost in Harry Potter and those concepts of the, the blank, but it's just part of the Irish consciousness. So counter means a district, a place, a region. The opposite of counter, if you look in any diction, is alter. Alter means the other world, the nether world the realm beyond and I said these people with a pukin with an invisibility blanket could hop from one to the other from cola from from counter to altar so it's like a transportational device exactly yeah so cola a pukini so if you had a pukini you were off to no pukini was the veil uh, and pukini also means magic mushrooms you know yeah yeah I remember because that's a way of getting to the other realm like and the other word for um, a mushroom is bullig. Bullig is a lot, and bullig obviously means a belly, but it also means a womb, a way of getting into the other world. And bulligis is a bl- a blister or a bubble of knowledge. It was you took uh, it was a hazelnut, a magic hazelnut, you know that the fish that took salmon, salmon took. Knowledge. Salmon you took this bullig, bulligis, this bubble of knowledge, and suddenly you were able to expand into the other world. Um, and so like and then cola, cola means. Um, or culta. Culta means cloaked or hooded. But then culta fuivrachi is cloaked under a fairy mantle. It was just a natural idea. Cola means a gate or a doorway. But cola vrak is a particular magical entranceway into the other world that's halfway up a hill and surrounded by stones. Like I could go on all day with giving this vast knowledge of words that are to do. The other world was more important than the real world. And again, how do we like... What, like okay just even and this might be relevant to skeptics in there how do we go how how has our view of and this is obviously a question that doesn't have an answer excuse me but how, like say modern day view and perspective of life mm-hmm. is really like linear it's rational it's logic it's industrial it's competitive it's hierarchical it's patriarchal all these big words but when 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 I speak of fairies or I, I have this like even Ned was talking about dinosaurs and who's Ned? Ned? That's my son. Mm-hmm. And then Theo's got dinosaurs don't exist. And I said, How do you know they don't exist? And mm. and part of me still believes in fairies and believes in mm. magic and believes in the other world and loves believing about it. But like when I say it, I sound stupid, so I, I kind of feel a bit self-conscious. But like it's like the Irish language, it was just part of the paradigm that yeah. well, you don't believe in fairies. And like mm-hmm. even Bruce Parry spoke about I think it was Bruce Parry told a story, it was I think it was Bruce Perry spoke of a story where he, he was out with um, a father and son from an indigenous tribe in the rainforest and they were walking and they didn't, they didn't, like they just walked and they knew how to get there. And your man asked him, how did you get, how did you know how to get there? And he said, well, the deers told me. And your man said, how did the deer tell me? Mm. He said, well, the deers the told me. The trees told him. The trees told him. And this sense, this sense of 
I don't know. I'm being such a, a dreamer and my rose tinted yeah. that sense of connection and that sense of. You're going to like my books. My book goes into so much of this in depth. It shows of the hidden knowledge that's in the place names. It shows the masses of knowledge that's in the other world. But how did that stop, as you say? How did we become pragmatic and small-minded and rational? Yeah, and it's simple. It's, it's just the famine. We were totally expanded. We were these dream-filled people immersed in nature. The famine, a natural, a natural occurrence came, wiped us out. And we realised, our mothers realised everyone's going to die unless they learn English and get out, unless they get out. And to get out, you need to learn English. So I need to, the mothers and the parents thought, I need to stop. I need to make sure, the, you know, 1845 to 1849 is the famine. 1831 is when the British national school system set up around Ireland teaching us English. So certainly 10 years before we had the ability to learn English, the parents think, the only way my kid can get can survive, because everyone has been wiped out from here. Like, you know, in Mayo and place West Cork, 30% of the population gone. You had to lose the language. You had to become rational and focused and take on the and English survival. language, which, as you said, made you myopic. So that was vital from then we only we were a place of poverty and hardship until the 50s until the 70s the mid 80s really so it's only now that we've had the only child, the boom years that we realised actually we can take on the Irish language again. 1996 was when the government felt rich enough to set up TG Car. We all felt the beginnings of we can Scooby-Doo and Spongebob was in Irish. The beginning of what we're seeing now, people turning back to the Irish language in a new way. And luckily, so much of the knowledge that was there at the time of the famine that was still preserved in the 1930s, De Valera, you know, sent people out to every school in the country to ask them what the fairy lore was in their area and it was all written down in copy books and that's what's now on the website duchas d-u-c-h-a-s dot i-e if you have a grandparent or great grand uncle or, or an uncle even who was in school who was looking you know in, part, in primary school was about six or seven or eight in 1938 or 39 their memories of who was the family who had dealings with the mermaids where was the family who found gold under a, under a rainbow what did they do with the gold who were the people who had the magical cures in your area who where were the entrances into the other world and who were the people who often slid into the other world and came back with magical knowledge it's all recorded there it's all online even here you speak that I'm like, what? No, no. It's all thanks to the internet and digital, and that this is all coming out now. Like we're at a time, we're at the very first years. We're going to look back, you know, at anything pre 2012 as the dark ages. This, like, you have been so long ahead of yourself saying killing animals and controlling animals is not good. You look at it to an Irish language word, you get a word dianach. Dianach means the lonesomeness of a cow bereft of her calf. Oh. That's a that's a word that anyone in the countryside has heard. What's it called? Dianach. Dianach. Or nusacht. Nusacht means the love-filled mumbling and murmuring of a cow to her calf. Now, anyone who has heard that, we feel it inside ourselves because we recognise it. It's the same feeling that we hear with a mother to their baby. And the same, that bellowing that you hear a cow do when the calf has been taken away, we feel it inside because we know it's angst. You, it's yeah, I went, I went to a friend, to uh, uh, Victor McGannity, a friend who's an osteopath, and I went to him there, it was a good few months ago, but I asked, we were chatting away, and I said, I just, he said he was a bit tired or something. I said, why? And he said, uh, oh, I could hear the, I could hear noises like all night. And then he said, it wasn't until a few days later, he, he came back to me, he said, you know what those noises were? He said it was uh, just up on the farm, up the road, the, the, the farmer had taken the calves away from the cows. Or the lambs from the yeah, ewes. It was the lambs and the ewes or something, but there was animals screaming all night for their kids. And that was what was keeping them awake, those, yeah. Yeah. you know, which and was... And what's the Irish word for that? 
Dionacht is the lonesomeness of the cow, yeah. And again, had we had this conversation five years ago, we would have known the IFA had such control. The farming lobby and the cap reform in EU had such control. The government had such control. This was never going to end. And yet, look what's happening now. Nothing is nothing is clear yet, but it is obvious that everything about traditional farming in Ireland and Europe is going to change radically from well, today on. Really, you know. And from why cap is that? Reform. So we're quite ignorant. We don't. It's just cap reform. Is realizing we cannot. It is what well, we've always cap, known. Yeah, that's common agricultural policy. Policy, yeah, is going to have to reform to make sure that farming does not produce as much carbon. And there's there. So it's going to be moving largely away from animal to encouraging more horticulture. I mean, IFA is still in denial. The Irish Farming Association is saying, no, don't worry, we'll be able to get rid of everything except dairy farming. You know, and you know, we export ninety percent of our of our milk and our beef. Um, that's wow. not sustainable anymore. Not sustainable anymore. So this is just the. Big, it's going to be a messy, rocky ride. But it's exciting to be here, to be here now. Even here you speak, it's like pockets are like, yes! <laughs> yeah. Wow. I follow you, I'm going. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> That's where we're going. Yeah. We're, with you. we're going to, what's the word again? The p- We're going to the Citadel. The Citadel, yeah. Exactly. Citadel, oh, the Citadel of potency. <laughs> there we go. That's a nice one to go. Right. Right. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. 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 Thank you.